when a stroke is required. I wouldn't know about what went on before my time, muttered Loban. He spat over the stern railing, threading the gobbet between the helmsman at the starboard steering oar and one of Garrick's young aides. The aide jumped and smothered a curse. Generally, an aide was somebody's nephew, a second son who could run errands for the prince and either rise to a position of some rank at court or be killed. This youth, Lord Lurdane, was an exception. He was the heir presumptive of Count Lurdoch of Blaise, one of a handful of the most powerful nobles in the kingdom. Lurdane's presence at Garrick's side made it more likely that Lurdoch would remain loyal. Loban scrunched his face into a smile and said to the aide, Don't worry, boy. I won't hit you unless I mean to. His face shifting into a mask of frustration, he added, Not room to swing a cat aboard this pig. There's so many civilians aboard. Uh, begging your pardon, your highness. I understand, Master Loban, Garrick said with a faint smile. The Shepherd of the Isles was as large as any vessel in the royal fleet. She had a crew of nearly three hundred men. Despite the Queen Karim's relative size, she was strictly a warship rather than a yacht intended to carry a prince. Garrick's personal bodyguard, twenty-five blood eagles, took the place of the Shepherd's normal complement of marines but he and the dozen members of his personal entourage were simply excess baggage, so far as the ship's personnel were concerned. Though as for being civilians, Garrick added mildly, I think you'd find I could give as good an account of myself in battle as most of the marines of the shepherds. For his formal arrival in Carcosa, Garrick wore a breastplate of silvered bronze and a silvered helmet whose spreading wings had been gilded. If the sun cooperated, Prince Garrick would be a dazzling gem in a setting formed by the polished black armor of his bodyguards. Garrick's armor this day was for show, but the sword hanging from his belt had a plain bone hilt and a long blade of watered steel. Swung by an arm as strong as Garrick's, the edge would take an enemy's head off with a single stroke. Yes, sir, your highness, Loban said, looking horror-struck to realize what he'd said to his prince. To avoid a further blunder, he stepped forward on the walkway and bellowed through the ventilator. Timekeeper, raise the stroke a half-beat, won't you? This is supposed to be a royal entry, not a funeral procession. The rate at which the oars dipped, rose, and feathered forward increased. In time, the shepherd would slide marginally faster through the water, but a quinkerim was too massive to do anything suddenly. The trouble is, lad, said the image of Karras, you don't act like a noble and they treat you like the folks they grew up with. Then they remember who you really are, and they're afraid you'll have them flayed alive for disrespect to Prince Garrick of Haft. I'd never do that, Garrick thought in shock. No more would I, Karras agreed. But there's some in your court who'd show less hesitation over executing a commoner for disrespect than they would over the choice of a wine with their dinner. I don't belong here, Garrick whispered but he didn't need the snort from the ghost in his mind to know that he did indeed belong. The kingdom of the Isles, racked by rebellion and wizardry, needed Prince Garrick and his friends more than it needed any number of the courtiers and ornithal landowners who'd claimed to be the government of the Isles for most of the thousand years since the old kingdom collapsed in blood and chaos. Thought of his friends made Garrick look toward the bow where his sister, Sharina, his boyhood friend Cashel, and the wizard Tenoctris 
leaned against the railing. Like Garrick, they were mostly concerned with keeping out of the way. This was a particular problem for the women, since they dressed for arrival in Carcosa in spreading court robes of silk brocade, cream with a gold stripe for Princess Sharina, sea green for the aged wizard. Tenoctris was much older than the seventy years she looked. She'd been flung a thousand years into the future and onto the beach at Barker's Hamlet by the same wizard-born cataclysm that had brought down the old kingdom. Sharina wore a fillet, but the golden flood of her hair streamed out beneath it. She was tall, taller than most men in Barker's Hamlet, and blonde unlike anyone else in the community. Her mother Laura had been a maid in the palace at Carcosa when tall blonde Nyard, an Ornifal noble, had been Count of Haft through his marriage to Countess Terra. Even a brother could see that Sharina's willowy beauty would be exceptional in any company. But I know a prettier woman yet, whispered Garrick, and smiled wider to think of Leanne Bosbenliman. She'd be meeting him here in Carcosa for their wedding. Sharina felt the weight of her brother's glance. She turned and waved, her smile like sunlight. Tenoctris and Cashel turned with her. The old wizard was cheerful, bird-like, and as doggedly determined as any soldier in the army. Cashel was almost as tall as Garrick, but he was so broad that he didn't look his height unless you saw him with ordinary men. Mountains would crumble before either Cashel or his sister Ilna, aboard the two-decked patrol vessel following the shepherd, ever failed their duty. Sharina was fortunate to love a man so solid and so much in love with her. Has never been a man luckier in his friends, Garrick thought as he smiled back. Then he turned and waved to the small woman in the stern of the patrol vessel astern. When Ilna saw Garrick wave, her first thought was, What does he mean by that? Then, feeling foolish, she waved with her right as her left held the cord she was plaiting. The movement was polite and a little prim. Garrick didn't mean anything by it. He was just making a friendly gesture to a childhood friend who didn't mean very much to him. Near Ilna, Chalkas talked with Captain Ramus Borhariel, a nobleman younger than Ilna's nineteen years. From what Ilna had seen of the captain during the voyage, he was a complete ninny. That didn't matter, of course. The flying fish's sailing master took care of navigation and the ordinary business of the ship, limiting the captain's responsibilities to leading his men in battle. In Ilna's opinion, ninnies were quite sufficient for that task. Is something wrong, Ilna? Marota asked from Ilna's elbow. The nine-year-old was, as Lady Marota Bosroriman, the orphaned heir to one of the wealthiest houses on Ornifal. Ilna was her guardian. The girl was related to Lord Tadai, who acted as Chancellor and Chief of Staff while Garrick was with the fleet. Tadai would have taken care of Marota, but to Tadai that meant marrying the child to some noble as quickly as possible. Ilna and her brother Cashel had been left to raise themselves after their grandmother died when they were seven. Their father, Kensit, had never said who their mother was. He'd kept a close tongue on the question of where he'd been when he went off adventuring. The only task Kensit applied himself to after coming home with the infants was drinking himself to death, and at that he quickly succeeded. Ilna and Cashel had survived, survived and prospered, most would say. They were honored members of the royal court, after all. 
but Ilna wouldn't willingly see another child deal with what she'd gone through herself. If that meant she had to take responsibility for the child, well, she'd never been one to shirk responsibility. Nothing's wrong, Marota, Ilna said. Nothing more than usual, that is. Chalkas caught Ilna's eye. He bowed to her and Marota with a flourish before resuming his conversation. Chalkas was no more than middling height. He looked slender from the side, but his shoulders were broad. If you looked closely at his sharply pleasant features, you saw the scars. And he had scars of one sort or another over most of his body. From taste and habit, Ilna dressed plainly. Chalkas, by contrast, was a dazzle of color whenever circumstances permitted. Today, he wore breeches of red leather, a silk shirt dyed in bright indigo, and between them a sash colored a brilliant yellow that matched the fillet binding his hair. Ilna knew that the nobles gathered on the quay to meet them would think Chalkas looked like a clown, but they wouldn't say anything. You're really all right, Ilna? Marota asked softly. Yes, child, Ilna said deliberately resuming the pattern she'd been knotting from the hank of short cords she kept in her sleeve. Ilna glanced at the fabric her fingers were knotting, while her mind considered other, less pleasant things. Her pattern in coarse twine would calm those who looked at it, raise their spirits, or cool their anger. Ilna didn't weave charms any more than the sun was a charm because it warmed those on whom its rays fell. She put the finished fabric in her right sleeve, then took a fresh hank of cords out of her left and began again. The patterns were just a way of occupying her fingers. The work didn't calm her exactly, but her irritation was more likely to come to the surface if she wasn't doing something. A trumpeter signaled from the flagship, the five-banked monster to the right of Garrick's. Captain Ramus looked startled. What's that? he cried. What are we to do, Plotnin? Before the sailing master could answer, Chalkas laid a hand on the nobleman's shoulder and spoke reassuringly. A trireme pulled ahead. Ilna smiled at an idle thought. She gave her completed patterns to oarsmen and soldiers, common people. She'd been around the rich and powerful enough in recent days to know that they had problems also. But somebody else could worry about them. Ilna would take care of her own first. She'd always had a talent for fabrics. As a young girl, she'd woven so skillfully that the other women in the borough surrounding Barker's hamlet brought Ilna the thread they'd spun, and instead of weaving themselves, took a share of the profits from the cloth she finished. That, as much as her brother's early strength, explained how two orphans had survived in a community which, while fairly prosperous as peasant villages went, had no surplus for useless mouths in a hard winter. Ilna's talent was natural, or at least passed for it. But when Ilna left Barker's hamlet, she'd taken a wrong turning that had led her to hell. She'd met what looked like a tree there. The skills the tree had taught her gave Ilna the power to let or hinder souls, to change a heart or steal a life. She'd used her new abilities for what she thought at the time were her own ends, but which she knew now were the purposes of evil alone. While evil ruled her, Ilna had done things that she couldn't forgive and which couldn't be put right. She knew that she'd never be able to make amends for the evil she'd done casually, callously. Ilna would try anyway, in small ways, in all the ways that she could. Eventually, she'd die with her job undone. 
Chalkas sauntered back from where he'd been talking to the captain. The flying fish was short, narrow, and relatively high. She carried fifteen oarsmen in the upper tier, on either side, with ten more below them in the center. There's a shipload of blood eagles gone ahead to make sure things are safe for Master Garrick, Chalkas said, hooking a thumb over his shoulder in the direction of the trireme that was already driving through the harbor entrance. Not that the lad showed much need to be protected the times I've seen him with a sword in his hand. The admiral's trumpeter sounded another signal. Chalkas, Lord Ramus called, trotting up the deck toward them. What do they want us to do? Chalkas slipped his hand from Marotas, tousled her hair, and gave Ilna a quick nod of regret before turning back to the captain. Chalkas was determined that the ship he'd brought Ilna and Marota aboard should proceed smoothly. It was a responsibility he'd accepted without having sought it, much as Garrick was ruling a kingdom, though Ilna was sure that he'd have been happier helping his father run a village inn. Garrick's big ship began to draw ahead of the other vessels. Prince Garrick of Haft would enter the harbor, with the rest of his mighty fleet following. Ilna's fingers wove twine. She knew that Marota was speaking, but for the moment she didn't have attention to spare for the child. Being a prince was a great burden, she was sure. Ilna didn't care about the Isles as a thing in itself, but she cared about people, and she knew that the people of the Isles were far better off with Garrick ruling the kingdom than if he hadn't been. A prince deserved a wife worthy of him, a well-born, well-educated, beautiful woman like Leanne Bosbenliman. It was far better for everyone that Garrick should marry Leanne than that he throw himself away on a peasant girl who couldn't write her own name, even if the peasant happened to have a talent for weaving. It's more like standing on the seawall at Barker's Hamlet than it's like being in a boat, Sharina said, looking down at the sea below the deck on which she stood to the left of Cashel and Tenoctris. We're moving, said Cashel. I don't think I'll ever get used to that. I don't mind, but it's not like being on solid ground. Sharina laughed. Cashel, so long as you're around, everything seems solid. She hugged herself to him. He didn't respond. They were in public, after all. But he smiled as he continued to watch the approaching shore. The great stone moles that extended Carcosa's fine natural harbor had survived the thousand years of neglect following the collapse of the old kingdom. One of the lighthouses that originally framed the entrance remained also streaming a long red-on-white pennant to welcome the fleet, but the other had fallen into a pile of rubble. The lighthouses had been built in the form of hollow statues.